0: Bismillah ar Rahman Rahim. And welcome to the Philosophy Society podcast. And today's topic is going to be about the coronavirus and how it has affected world economies, the regional economies, and how it affects Sudan's economy, generally speaking. Today we're going to be joined by a special guests. It's uh, my brother, Musab Khajali. And um, I'll let him introduce himself to you guys.
1: Salaam alaikum warahmatullahi wa First, I'd like to thank the society for inviting me on here to talk about the coronavirus, its origins, its effects, economic, political, and otherwise social. But before that, a little bit about myself. I have a background in economics and have... You know, spent my entire professional career thus far in financial services. So to, to begin with, the coronavirus, as we all know, the coronavirus began in Wuhan, China, late December or sorry, late November, early December, and it quickly spread within Wuhan in the Hubei province in China before other countries started detecting citizens or cases and reporting them. Soon after that it was declared a global pandemic and more countries started seeing um, their numbers go up in terms of cases but also the numbers of deaths and one of the interesting things to note here and this is something to do with economics as well is that there is always a lag between the number of new cases and number of deaths so the lag is usually two weeks and that's when they say the virus sort of takes Full effect, or the incubation period is roughly seven to 12, fourteen days, and so the numbers we see today in any country are two weeks out or two weeks um, behind actual death figures, um, which is which is interesting, and we'll come to why it's interesting later on. Um, so the, the 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 virus spread very quickly uh, throughout China. Well, not throughout China, through the Hubei province, and then throughout Europe. Africa, the Middle East, um, Asia, and then it's gone to America uh, and spread there as well. North America, Central America, and Latin America as well. And so one of the things that's happened is, one of the things to note actually, China is a global powerhouse when it comes to production. So they produce mobile phones. If you have an iPhone or a OnePlus, they produce those over there and they assemble them. If you own any sort of hardware, electronic Um, or even consumer goods like daily consumer goods, blenders, electrical goods a lot of spare parts for some cars or some car manufacturers are are made in China right so it's a global powerhouse when it comes to production and so one could say it's a global supplier and the interesting part here is because China's labour is so cheap it's been able to claim that title of global supplier or the global manufacturer for any any company across the world. So you can go out there and you can have Apple making products and phones, or you can have a local businessman from Sudan going out there and asking them to produce clothes, They're traditional Sudanese clothes, because the material there is cheaper, but so is the, 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 the cost of labor. And he can and, and then he can import that into Sudan and sell and make a tiny profit. And a lot of Sudanese entrepreneurs do this as well. Um, and not just Sudanese, even people from the Middle East or people in America. Um, and that's really the reputation that China has garnered over the past 20-25 years. So when, that, when when the virus first broke out, and obviously I have that, Mohammed feel free to interrupt me with any questions you have. The, the, the virus broke out and the first thing that the Chinese government did was lock down uh, Wuhan and so people who used to go to, to to factories and work no longer did factories stopped producing and so the supply chain was endangered a lot of a lot of companies in the west retailers in in high street realized that their regular supplier is now or their main supplier was now out of commission and they were, they were having to have they were going to have issues in the future with obtaining supply or getting essentially what they paid for from china and
0: um can you give us can you give us a little example or a little contrast uh between the economies and the economy based economy bases basically be- the difference between for instance europe or western europe and china and how that affects the relationship between the, uh, these two countries for instance or one being production and the other being maybe service-based
1: or sure Sure. And so that's a good question, and, and it sort of ties into how this has become a global pandemic when it comes to the virus, but also what seems to be now a global recession, right? And so China being a producer is a production-focused economy. So what they do, they take things um, and turn them into finished goods. And so they'll take raw materials, they'll take iron, they'll take um, textiles, they'll take plastics, and they'll give the, uh, produce... Steel. They'll produce computer parts. They'll produce clothes, and they'll sell these out to, um, uh, or provide. You know, the, the service that they provide essentially is manufacturing. Whereas the West, predominantly the, the the United States, the other big economy in question here, is a service is a service-based economy. Right. So you go to the U.S. for insurance. Um, a, lo- a lot of insurance providers are there. Um, you go for investment, asset managers. American asset managers have dominated the global um, asset management scene. You go there for a holiday. You go there for service provision, banking. Um, and essentially, the U.S. is very good at providing a service. And in itself is a very well-serviced economy. You don't see a lot of European companies going to the U.S. to service cu- customers in the U.S., um, and that's because the U.S. economy itself or the marketplace there is so advanced that, and, and, and very large as well that it allows for competition and it also allows for um, a wider area to be, to be serviced. So if you look at software, for example, the easiest example I can give here is software. The biggest competitor to Google in the U.S. is Facebook, essentially, even though Facebook is a slightly different platform. There is no European counterpart to this. There is no European counterpart to Google or to Facebook or to Twitter. Um, there is no Asian or African counterpart to those. The only counterpart is a Chinese version of that, <clears throat> which is essentially only servicing China. And that's because of the restrictions that the Chinese government places and the censorship that it it um, it places on social media and social platforms. And so that's the main difference. Um, the US, a long time ago, Decided that it was easy, it was easier and cheaper for it to manufacture its goods in China. And so, for example, if you have a Dell laptop, if you look at the bottom of the Dell laptop, Dell is a very American company. You know, it was created by Michael Dell. It was it was essentially a company where Michael Dell himself used to buy parts and build computers and then sell the computers whole. Michael Dell and his company now manufacture in China, and then they provide services such as clouding, cloud services or other other um, Services in the US
0: on, on, on that point about uh, the production or the importing of jobs or exporting rather of jobs in, in, in the UK there's been um, in recent years a criticism of this of this of this movement. I was just wondering um, where does this where does this play in, in what we talked about about the, the, the types of economy so whereas there's some economists that would say for instance, that the fact that moving jobs, and I don't want I don't want stressing this point too much because we still haven't gone too long. But essentially, well, some economists might, might might suggest that when you move jobs from the U.S., for instance, to China, it's a bad thing because it takes jobs from the from from the people. But also simultaneously, this this not mean that their economy is reaching a point of service production advancement to the point where they don't necessarily need to rely on production.
1: Or how does that work exactly? So. The idea that the US has exported its jobs to China makes sense. I think what we need to be careful here is what we mean. Um, When any country transitions from an agricultural economy to a manufacturing economy, and then from that onto a service uh, economy, a lot of jobs are essentially made obsolete because of the technology, because of the demand, and because of the nature of um, economic and political change, right? And so for China, what was once an agrarian economy, you know, focused on manufacturing, on on agriculture, it moved to manufacturing. So farming isn't as big as manufacturing is now, just like manufacturing isn't as big as services or service provision in the U.S. is now. And so naturally, a lot of jobs which have been made obsolete are moved to countries where there is a high Level of supply for that particular job in terms of people who are skilled enough to make to to, to perform that job, but two, there's a supply, there's a there's a high enough demand to take into account the new supply of um, of these of these jobs. Essentially, if I'm manufacturing goods today in the U.S. and tomorrow we switch into servicing, someone else in China can produce cheaper, so comparative advantage advantage in economics. In the U.S., I'm likely to lose my job. And so for me, I'm losing my job not because not just because it's going to China, but because the demand and supply rules in the U.S. has changed, or trends in the U.S. has changed.
0: Okay, that being said, could I, is it fair to say that uh, it's a chronological pro- progression? So does it go from agricultural to production-based to service-based? Is this, is this a progression or is it just different types of economy and there, there's, no, there's no sort of continuum
1: linking them? I mean that's 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 essentially been the trend throughout history. In the UK, it was um, it was farming, and then came the industrial revolution, and now the UK has sort of you know transitioned into a service provision economy, right? So London is the one of the um, the uh, financial capitals of the world, but the UK also provides other services, insurance. You look at Lloyd's of London, for example, the biggest insurer in the world, or the biggest group of insurance syndicates in the world um, and so it, it follows naturally that economies when they transition they transition from agricultural to manufacturing to service provision and and, and here we're you know we have to sort of um, emphasize that this is the natural trying the, the, the national, the natural transition excuse me if you look at countries in the Middle East they were countries that were poor when it comes to resources but then they discovered oil and so they sort of made the jump from where they were which wasn't really agricultural because they didn't really produce enough to export you know produce enough to domestically consume uh, where they could and then jump straight into a manufacturing or a service provision um, economy i think we should use this to to, for as a segue speaking
0: of um the middle east uh can you just give us a little highlight about the collapse of the oil futures in america and what this means to countries who are depend oil dependent
1: so before going to that we have to look at what happened globally first right so china being the global manufacturer suddenly start asking employees and factory workers to stop going to work and they locked down the, the country um And specific regions, for you know, for for an extended period, and so many so so that in economics is what we call a supply side shock. Um, If my supply can't provide me with the goods I need to sell, I can't sell, or my profits go down, right? Um, And so obviously that affects consumption. Consumers who used to buy from me either move to a, a competitor, or they change their consumption trends or choices. Okay, as the virus went went west. And so here in Europe, you start seeing a demand side shock. And so people who used to go out and consume products made in China, clothes, electronics, so on and so forth, have now been left at home because they're in lockdown and some are able to work from home. Others have lost their jobs and so their income is now very limited. And so their, their budgeting has to consider the fact that they are, jo- they are now job seekers, but also they need to focus on making sure that they only buy what they need. And keeping safe. And so even if they did have money, they wouldn't go they you know they didn't spend in the same way that they did previous to this outbreak. And so they'll move from going out to restaurants and bars and um and and, on holidays to consuming things like medicine or taken out or long lasting food items like pasta and rice. And so when you have a supply side shock and a demand side shock, you're gonna see that globally because this is an inter, you know, interlinked global economy now, two things: the first is prices are going to go down. So if my my cons- my consumers are moving away from from me as a as, as a seller, I'm going to have to find a way to sell um, at you know to, to anyone that, will, that that's going to buy. And so some consum- some sellers have begun um, discounting their their goods, but then again. Um, consumption trends themselves change so you see Amazon for example in the west in, in, in the west has taken up a high proportion of the market um, and so it's, it slightly increases market share because it's been in the in atmos- in the in the space where you can go you can be at home and order almost anything from Amazon right um, how that then translates globally is because we're in lockdown we're no longer using cars we're no longer using public transport aviation has taken a hit. For example, British Airways is looking to cut twelve thousand jobs. Um, Other airlines in the UK and in Europe are facing issues. Same thing is happening in the US, right? And so, when you talk about a global supply side shock, you are talking about what what China is able to manufacture, right, and produce and sell. When you talk about demand side shock you're talking about what I'm going to buy. And so I'm going to buy clothes, I'm going to buy food, but I'm also going to buy less and less of those things. And one of the things I'm going to buy less of, because I'm I'm no longer travelling, is petrol or diesel or tickets for a a holiday away to Barbados. And so the global demand for oil has gone down. And we can see from that that the Middle East, for example, a region where oil-rich nations are solely dependent On oil or natural gas are seeing their revenues go down and some countries which have sovereign wealth funds have that as a buffer between the shock that they face now and you know serious financial uncertainty or even recession Um, and so for them it's more 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 of a question of now that you know now that we have a because you know because those countries don't have a supply side issue they can produce 12 million barrels a day, they can produce more than that, they can produce less than that. The problem is, how do we get people to buy this? And so what you see now is deflation, essentially, um, and the market correcting itself when it comes to oil prices. Um, there's too much of it out there, there's not enough demand to keep up, and so barrels of oil are now costing 10 to $12 from a peak of 120-some some years ago.
0: The reason why I ask about the Gulf region economies is because of the recent well, not so recent, but ambitious foreign policy in, in the Middle East, in North Africa, and um, in that region, which, which directly brings us to Sudan, I suppose. Do you think that their, their ambitious um, uh, foreign policy is going to take a hit now that their economy is somewhat reaching a point or may even reach a point of precariousness?
1: Yeah, so with some background here, The UAE and Saudi Arabia have been heavily involved in Yemen, the UAE has also been heavily involved in Libya and Tunisia, to a lesser degree of success in Tunisia, Um, and part of that could be to do with the fact that Tunisia doesn't have as much when it comes to natural resources as Libya does, but also there is more instability in Libya, right, and so uh, Tunisia has managed to transition to democracy, and that sort of protects it from foreign intervention to to a degree. the UAE is not the US, and it doesn't have the influence globally that the US does um, to sort of penetrate that barrier of protection from democracy. With what's happened globally, and this is, and this is to do with coronavirus and um, you know low oil prices, <clears throat> and low prices generally for stocks and equities and um, bonds. The global economic turmoil from this means that investments that the UAE had. And Saudi Arabia had <clears throat> across the world have taken a hit. Oil, which was a buffer previous to this, has also taken a hit. And so for them, the treasure chest, the war, ch- the war chest essentially has taken a hit as well. They've expended far too much um, in Yemen without any significant result. At least for the Saudis, for them to be able to call that a win. But it, when it comes to North Africa and Libya specifically, the 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 UAE is seen. That Haftar is making some progress in, in, in you know in some areas, but overall his influence has gone down. And so when you talk about the project of influence in the region, so you're talking about the Middle East, North Africa, and you look at Libya, the investment that the UAE and Saudi Arabia have made in Yemen and in Sa- in, in Libya hasn't really paid off that well. If anything, it's brought more um, of the global attention onto the UAE's, you know, poor, you know, human rights record outside of its borders. Not that its record within its borders is great, but it's sort of pushed into, a, 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 you know, into the limelight some more. And so when the UAE, you know, started trying to influence politics in Sudan through intervention, through gestures of friendliness, you know, providing military aid and supplies. And medical supplies as well to Sudan after the revolution and the ouster of Omar al-Bashir and his regime. They've they've realised that they don't have the money for it anymore. I mean, domestically they have to worry about the economy and making sure that citizens have what they need. And when you talk about the UAE, you're talking about a population of 1.2, 1.3 million nationals. The rest are all expats. And so there's a real there's a real worry in the UAE um, when it comes to where you know where, where are we going to get the money to finance all these wars from? They're soon going to run out of money from their sovereign wealth fund. I mean, to give you an example, Saudi Arabia burnt through a quarter of its investment fund in two years because of the war in Yemen. And there's nothing, there's no return there. You see, um, so I think when it comes to Sudan, when it comes to foreign influence in the in the region, oil, which used to be the the motivator and the the tool by which these countries operated, is no longer viable. Sudan itself, even if it was given free oil from the Saudis and the Emiratis, does not have the capability or the capacity to take that crude oil and refine it into petroleum or petrol and diesel or any other petroleum products. And so what previously was a tool that could be used for many, many things is no longer an effective tool. And that's because of the global economy, because of changing, changing trends, but also because of the coronavirus. Okay,
0: there's, there's two headlines that I picked up, I think, this, this two days. The first headline said that, which is today, uh, I believe it was uh, President Trump who called the, the Saudi prince, uh, Mohammed Salman, um, and told him, essentially, that you know, they need to stop oil production. And so that, that I would assume, will take a, a great hit. For, for the company, I mean, you know, if anything were to mark their, you know, um, their, their, their precarious, the start of their precarious situa- situation, it would be that. Um, but also the second more important headline concerning Sudan specifically, I think this was either either yesterday or the day before, I'm not too sure, was there's a delegation of Emirati sort of top politicians or rather, you know, probably members of the royal family who, who came to Sudan in... What some suspect to be a strategy to employ uh, soldiers from Sudan to aid in the war against um, against the UN-backed um, government of, of, of Libya, and I was just wondering, and also the, the, just just to play in one last one last one last uh, headline is there was there was an ambitious sort of um, initiative by Omar al-Bashir before he was ousted. Where he wanted to sell Port Sudan to 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 I think it was either I think it was a Filipino um company that had its court, some uh, you know a branch in the UAE I believe. But now the other day there was another another attempt at buying Port Sudan by by I think the company called World Ports I believe if I'm not, if I'm, not, if, I'm not, if I'm if I'm not mistaken in the UAE. And so what the the thing that you said about you know there there might be a buffer. Uh, before the precarious situation, I was wondering if the UAE is looking to capitalize on their import uh, Jabal Ali, the Jaffa zone, uh, Jaffa zone basically, which is which is you know probably one of the more lucrative initiatives that they have economically and how they want to perhaps hinder any 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 sort of competitors to that sort of um, uh, initiative. So those
1: are three quite expansive questions, so I'll do my best to answer all of them. Um, So going off of your first point, the, the, the recent call between Mohammed bin Salman and U.S. President Donald Trump, what I've read from that is that there was a heated exchange, to say the least, between the two, with Trump essentially demanding that the Saudis start playing ball and stop messing around when it comes to oil prices the U.S. economy has taken a severe hit. And, and so this, is again, goes back to the interconnectedness of the global economy.
0: I think, I think also, just to make a point there, some people say that, some analysts say that, you know, in, uh, if, if, if Mohammed bin Salman doesn't stop, they're going to withdraw troops, American troops from the region.
1: Yeah, and, and so that was the threat that Donald Trump levied against Mohammed bin Salman. The, the, the cause here for concern for U.S. President Trump is when the global economy contracted oil prices were the cause so and 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 this is some this is context to to the entire story here but when oil takes a dive a lot of equities take a dive as well if you think about it how do you get your bread in the shops here you know you get vans that transport them how do you get the, the 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 vans themselves across you manufacture them how you manufacture you have to import from china some parts and you have to import from germany some other parts and so all of that the entire transportation network across across the globe depends on energy and a lot of that energy is still heavily reliant on oil right so globally when, when when oil prices take a deep dive like they did in in march um you're talking about the stock market taking a hit as well because equities take a hit as well because it's such a macro event, such a large and powerful macro event that other seemingly unrelated companies or stocks take a dive just as oil prices do, right? And so that's affected the, the 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 U.S. stock market, which also plays into Donald Trump's promise, campaign promise, where he said, "I will I will make sure that we bring the best economy back. We will be hitting new records." And so for him, the biggest issue for for re-election even in his initial election was that the economy was going to be great under his watch. So the exchange between Mohammed Salman and Donald Trump was very heated Um, he levied a threat and he said if you don't stop this essentially what we're going to do is we're going to pull our troops from the region therefore we are no longer going to protect you and it's sort of a, a very thinly veiled threat that if Iran were to attack you or attack any country in the region, we will not be there as a defense mechanism or as a deterrent from any attack from uh, Iran um and so make of that as as what you want, but essentially the u s is putting a lot of pressure and very directly and openly on the u on Saudi Arabia, which is also a signal to other players in the region um that you want stability you want stability in the oil markets because it means there's stability in the stock market in the in the U.S. But also in the, uh, around the globe, if the U.S. economy takes a hit, you're talking about the biggest economy in the world, which also is going to have an effect on China because it's the largest producer for the U.S. You're talking about other countries that are heavily reliant on U.S. subsidies, U.S. aid, um, and so, the, so it has a knock-on effect. And so that sort of hopefully answers that question on that headline. The second headline, I believe you said, was how some members of the UAE government, or maybe the royal family, had visited Sudan recently, um, looking to procure some soldiers to f- to fight on behalf of the UAE government for Haftar in Libya. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. So, is it's good to go back to to the time where Omar al-Bashir? essentially joined the Gulf coalition that went into Yemen. And he promised that he will his support is unwavering. Obviously, he he received some money in exchange. Um, but his support was unwavering in, in the face of the Houthi um, problem in Yemen. And so he promised to intervene. He promised to join forces. And so he sent a few fighter jets. He also sent soldiers. And some of those soldiers are actually soldiers that came from... The West of Sudan, so you're talking Darfur. You're talking about um, Hametti specifically, and so Hametti has a militia of his own, um, which was essentially financed by the government of Sudan directly. And in an interview in 2004 or five, I believe, with uh, al Bagir, Hametti openly said that all of this, pointing to weapons and vehicles, armored vehicles, came from the government of Sudan. And so essentially, what Abu Bashir was doing in 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 early uh, I believe it was 2016 when the when the Saudis went into Yemen um, was saying I will provide you with soldiers, but essentially it was himeti providing soldiers, and so the UAE is sort of trying to use that again to sort of secure soldiers um, and manpower for 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 Haftar, who again is is losing the battle in Libya, and so this move by the UAE indicates two things. The first is they've spent too many you know they've they've squandered too many lives and treasure in Yemen to really commit to any military campaign using their own soldiers but two they don't want to get involved here they don't want to get involved directly and so they're trying to procure procure soldiers this way essentially mercenaries to to fight on their behalf for haftar but the third thing that sort of um, should be apparent is haftar is really losing the war in Yemen or sorry apologies in Libya and he's losing ma- men, he's losing weaponry. With the recent Turkish intervention in the region, um, which is more aggressive than the Saudis and the UAE um, had hoped, it sort of put things into perspective. If the if if the Turks enter Libya with all their uh, military might, this war is very easily decided for the Libyan government backed by the UN. And so what 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 the what the Emirates are doing and this is speculation on my part, is if they can't win this, there needs to be instability in Libya. If they can't outright win the war in Libya and install install Haftar as the president or the strongman or whatever the title is, they need Libya to be unstable. And so that means that with you know with, with instability, the UAE is essentially the You know, the most peaceful country in the region, but also the most stable. And so it sort of lends authority to it being this stable. And so it could go to the UN, you can go to the US and the West and say, look, in this region where there's instability and there's chaos and everything else that you don't like, we're a model nation. And I believe that's the the second part. The third part of this, I think you said. Before before we go into
0: the third part, I just want to draw a couple of parallels uh, with a couple of points that you said. I'm wondering here about the, the this whole the sort of motive behind this whole um, uh, military expedition from the UAE's part, uh, whether direct or by proxy, whether they are trying to neutralize competitors in order for them to become more sort of economically stable, or is it more of a, is it more of trying to deter any democratic progress from happening in order for it not in order for it to not reach their shores or maybe it's a combination of both and also more recently I've, I've, I've been recently i've been i've been i've been thinking about this in a more historical sort of history repeats itself sort of way because if you look if you look maybe a hundred or maybe 150 years ago like some somewhere between that countries such as sudan and, and countries like it they were essentially administered yes you know under colonialism and under the colonial of well sudan was under the foreign office but you know generated the colonial office and they used the proxy of egypt for instance So the Ottoman empire used the proxy of egypt and then later on uh, the british the british empire used the proxy of, of egypt as well um, and so i'm wondering if this is also a proxy similar to that so having the uae the most powerful well, not militarily but militarily via proxy and uh, economic support um, dictate the sort of trajectory or the political trajectory of the region.